Hey everyone, I'm Joe Chicarone, and this is Built Not Born, episode 75. Today's guest is Charlie the Spaniard Brenneman. Charlie Brenneman is a former UFC fighter, author, and professional speaker. Charlie tells his remarkable story of how he started teaching high school kids Spanish, but then ultimately ended up fighting in the octagon of the UFC. Charlie discusses the UFC fights he had, the lessons learned, and what ultimately led him to leave the ring and to author two books and speak professionally. I was so excited to get Charlie on the show. He is such a great guy. I was lucky enough to share the jujitsu mat with him a couple times back in the day. He's an awesome fighter, so articulate, so well-read, so smart. He is definitely one of those warrior scholars, so I hope you enjoy. If you like what you hear, please hit that follow button. We have a bunch of awesome interviews like this one. We're going to roll into our next season after the holidays. We are going to have best-selling author and marketing guru Seth Godin, American jiu-jitsu legend Steve Maxwell. We are going to have Jay Papazan, co-author of the runaway New York Times bestseller, The One Thing, all coming up. So please... Hit that follow button so you get the latest episode. Thank you for listening. Enjoy my conversation with the Spaniard, Charlie Brenneman. And remember, life is built, not born. Charlie Brenneman, welcome to the show. It's good to see you, man. It's been a little while, huh? <laughs> it's been a while, man. So great to see you. Charlie, for our listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, who are you and what do you do? Well, I'm a, uh, originally from a small town in rural central Pennsylvania called Hollidaysburg. I was a wrestler growing up and I feel like that, I mean, that's where I'm going with you said, who am I? What am I do? A wrestler growing up from a small town, kind of on the, uh, I don't know, the straight and narrow, just kind of doing the normal thing in life. And then I became a junior and senior high Spanish teacher and wrestling coach. And then I wrestled division one college and then post-college got that job teaching Spanish, coaching wrestling after three years, probably after about a year, I saw, I think this was around 2005, Frankie Edgar, who was a wrestling, I would say colleague of mine. He was in the same conference. We had mutual friends. We met several times, talk, nice guy in between classes. One day I saw he signed to the UFC and I was not real happy at that point. And I thought, boom, maybe that's what I can do. And then I went home and made the decision and finished out another year or so of teaching and early retirement after three years and dove into professional fighting, fought for about eight years, 27 professional fights. And post all of that, I speak to schools and businesses, share my story, the lessons in that story. I've written two books and I host two podcasts as well. I'm a father of two little kids and live here with my wife outside of Hershey, PA. Besides that, what do you got going on? <laughs> yeah, right. Not much, just chilling. A lot of sleeping, relaxing. <laughs> a lot of sleeping TV. in. I don't know if you remember, we trained at Balance for a while. You and I, I were- I do remember that, yep. Yeah, we're Balance. I got my mats behind us, you can see. I got nice. LEOs on the wall right about there. Nice. Yeah, I remember we rolled, I guess is years ago, and we rolled, and I didn't know your background. And after we rolled, I'm like, God damn, I was going like three, four times a week. I'm not that big, but I was there a lot. And I'm like, damn, this guy's good. 
And I'm like, and then yeah. he, <laughs> he was in the UFC. I'm like, I feel way better. <laughs> yeah, I've had that happen multiple times where I think, why am I not smashing this guy? And then like later on, I learned that he's fights freshly and or is in the UFC. And I'm like, yeah. oh my goodness. Okay, okay, I feel better about myself. It, it played off exactly the way it should. Wow, man. I, I want to get into one, how you go from the classroom to the ring, your two stints in the UFC, which is so impressive. Maybe life lessons you learned there, how you decided not only just to speak, but to write. Could you think of two harder things to do than professional fighter and writer? I mean, what one uh, uh, external things are trying to take you out with writing. I found in the limited I've done, like internal stuff tries to take you out to show up to have the discipline to write. When you get into your two books, Driven and uh, the world's toughest lifelong learner. Before we get into that, Charlie, I want to start back all the way from the beginning. Where did you grow up? Holidaysburg, PA. Generally, People think of Pennsylvania as Philadelphia or Pittsburgh. There's a lot of state in between, and there's a lot of state like north, south, east, and west, a big, big square or a big rectangle, basically. I'm from like the central western part of the state, small town, basically in between Philly and Pittsburgh. I find the dinner table and around 10, 12 years old, specifically very formative in people's lives. Who was there? What was going on? Could you describe the scene? Yeah, I love this question. And so like some images pop into my mind. One was my dad's like kind of, it would certainly be out of fashion now, his house coat. It's like a plaid. I don't know if it was, I don't know what it was made of, but it was heavy. It was like Perfect. red and green and black <laughs> squared checkered. That comes to mind. The newspaper, the smell of black coffee. My mom would be drinking. I'm the youngest of four kids in my family. And we're, uh, you know, I'm lucky. I was born into a great family, great mom and dad and, and, you know, my role models were my older siblings and my cousins, a really tight knit family that we all grew up near each other and kind of followed the leader in that sense. So I'm really <laughs> happy that the leaders were good people. Yeah. But we were uh, we were a sports oriented family. We were a high academic achieving family. So the dinner table, I feel like it's my mom, you know, prepping the meal, us either eating quick before practice or eating after practice. All of us sitting at the table, my mom to my left, my dad down the other end of the table, siblings, I have two older brothers and an older sister. And it was, uh, like I said, it was getting it done in between of school and sports. And, you know, the family aspect of, of it was very important as well. Yeah. If you look back towards that time, maybe pre-college, what, what's the most powerful memory of your childhood? You know, I had a lot of powerful memories wrestling because it's just so much heartbreak and emotions, not just heartbreak, but. That's what I take with me the most. That's the most powerful stuff. Losing, uh, having like setting, having your dreams crushed mm-hmm. at a young age is, is really intense. I speak in schools a lot, and I talk about you know being younger and and even though I feel like I was given a lot in life, I still walked around with a lot of fear. I felt like I was going to get beat up all the time, and it was just like overwhelming. So from a young age, we. My parents, and I do this with my kids, probably too much to their liking, but they were real direct and honest in their communication and our communication back to them. So whatever emotions I was dealing with, there was no like faking it. It was comfortably, let's put it on the table and talk about it. Where do you think that fear comes from? It's so common to have that anxiety of failing in advance, or like you, you think of bad things that could happen today, tomorrow, next week. 
and like walking around with a lot of fear. Why is that so common in the human condition, that fear? What, what yeah, well, I mean, from me, it came because I was being threatened to be beat up every day of middle school. I mean, that le legitimately is where my fear came from. How so? Um, How, a, a bullied? Like, like yeah, I, I don't know if I say bully, but yeah, just like knuckleheads whose mission is to beat you up or, or make your life miserable. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's where a lot of it came from for me. A lot of it's self-imposed. You know, you mentioned the human tendency. It's also a slippery slope. It's an easy, I don't know. It's, it's, it's very complex, but for me, it came because I literally felt like I was going to get beat up every day. I was trying to do the right thing. And a lot of times that wouldn't be the cool thing. So then that led to a lot of like worry about fitting in and stress and anxiety over that kind of stuff. And I hesitate to use the word stress, anxiety. I hesitate to use the word bullying. It's just life. I mean, it is life. It is, it is life. Um, and I think we all handle it differently. I think even though I was dealt a really good card in life, the adversity that I had coupled with the type of person I am, I think it hit me pretty hard. There are certainly people who have it a hundred times worse than I do, but maybe they're more naturally resilient or more naturally mentally strong. Mm -hmm. uh, I I was I hurt a lot emotionally, and I think that was just a, I don't know part of my character makeup. At what point did the mat come into your life wrestling? What led you to the mat and what point did that come in? What kind of effect did it have on you? Yeah, they were certainly some of my earliest memories as well. Back then, I'm 41 now, so I was born in 81. And let's say like uh, 86, 7, 8, 9, something like that. There were these things called old timers wrestling tournaments at where I'm from. You know, they were held at the junior high around that time. And so my first memory of wrestling is going to the junior high to these old timer wrestling tournaments, seeing my dad and my uncle do really well in these tournaments. Mainly my dad, he was more consistent than my uncle. My uncle wrestled at Penn State. So he's a, he was a state champ wrestler, a really good wrestler. But my dad, I feel like did these tournaments every year. I, I'm not sure how long my uncle did them or not, but I just remember those two wrestling and all these old dudes, you know, and this, I'm a little kid and just looking up to all these male role models and that's just what I remember. And I remember the, the singlets. I remember the shoes, the socks, the mat. And then I got into wrestling when I was eight. That was my first actual wrestling match when I was eight. The first year, I think I only wrestled one tournament. It's called Junior Olympics here in Pennsylvania. But then the next year, it was just hit the ground running. And it was something, it was just like a part of me. You know, there was, I don't remember any like, hey, are you going to wrestle this year? It was just kind of like a foregone thing that I was going to do it. And I did it. And I always did it. And it really guided my life. Wrestling has that visceral experience. When you're on the mat, it's like you versus someone else. And it's so binary. It's like win-lose. It's like the mat tells no lies. It's like right at the moment you get pinned or, or you pin the person, you escape from the move, you don't escape. It's so visceral. And it causes like such emotions to come out. Can you speak to that, the benefits of having as a youth being on the mat and, and having that experience? Yeah, I mean, I cannot state the value of that enough every year i go to hershey and watch the state championships man i, I almost get emotional i almost like cry just watching it because with the overabundance of youths having a lot of struggles with mental and emotional health the, the tendency is to well then let's run from let's run from it let's run from challenge let's run from heartbreak but as exposure therapy or immunizations or whatever, like a little bit builds a little bit of challenge, a little bit of heartbreak, a little bit of setbacks handled the right way with 
support, encouragement, learning, and growth, et cetera, it, it really does build up resilience in your character, in yourself. And for me, I mean, I, I wouldn't trade it for the world. I still carry fear. I still carry apprehension and nervousness, et cetera, but it affects me zero. It, it's zero effect. Like it, I get embarrassed on a regular basis in small ways, you know, like mm-hmm. putting out surveys online where nobody responds. It's like, mm-hmm. well, everyone sees that nobody responded, you know, it's, <laughs> but you got to do it if you want to find the thing that hits. So through all of that little kid wrestling and then fighting more so on a public display, it just, whatever, it's everything that I'm, I could say is cliche, right? You live and you learn. I mean, it's truth. Anyone that succeeds failed a lot. They just kept going. It just kept going. So true. And if you look at it, you were in like the MMA martial arts world, right? Where there's some sort of fear there. You put stuff out and it gets smacked down like a technique, but even more the creativity side where you like put a survey out or you put a book out and it potentially may or may not do what you want it to do or get the responses. That's so an adjustment to the ego, isn't it? Like they're both such ego adjustments. In their yeah, it is. Way. It is. And for me, it's like practice, right? So you practice losing, you practice being made fun of, you practice even winning, you see what works, what doesn't work. And then you read other people's stories and all little by little by little, it starts to click and you realize like, oh, hey, um, for every hit song, right? They wrote 20 songs that stunk, right? Like every album, whatever, whatever. Like there's, it's just, that's the way it is. And then you start to grow comfortable with that. And it's, it's like an awareness or a realization of that. And then with what I do now, I, I love when people say to me, you should start a YouTube channel. Uh-huh. I have 700 videos on YouTube. Like I, I ha- <laughs> and nobody watches them. So it's like, and eventually you can come back to the fact, well, nobody watches them so because I'm not, they don't like it. Like it's, yeah. it's not their problem. It's my problem. I, if yeah. I find a, a button to push that evokes people, then boom, that's the thing. Like I said to a guy, I was at, at the gym. I don't know, I forget what you're talking about, but I was like, yeah, the market is the market, right? The market tells you. So if you put something out and nobody likes it, yeah, they don't like it. Like that, that's it. It's not because you're dumb or you're yep. a loser. It's just because they don't care about not it. Not for them. them. A Seth Godin will say, not for them. It's yeah. Just, yeah. And another thing is again, learning and listening and reading and blah, blah, blah. Uh, you realize that a lot of times it's just luck. It's absolute luck or chance. Yeah, that's it. Locker chance, timing, whatever. It's a lot to do with it. That is out of your control. We control the effort, but we don't control the result, right? Like you can control that you write every day. You can control that you put X amount of podcasts out a week. You can control like once a year you write a book, but you can't control how the market responds to that book or how many downloads you get, right? It just, you control the effort. You're entitled to the effort that you put through or control the effort, but you're not entitled to any results. And you just got to be- be good with it, right? So these past two months have been the busiest speaking months I've ever had, right? Okay. B- busiest I've ever had. And I think it was like just under three weeks, I spoke 17 times. Wow. And it was a lot. And I, I, you know, wrestling, fighting has taught me, okay, well, you can be on top. And then if you get comfortable on top, well, then you're just going to get knocked out, right? So we're choked out. So I made a post saying basically what you just said, the only things I can control are my outreach, right? My marketing, like how many potential touches am I putting out on a daily basis, potential leads or gigs or whatever. And then I control my effort slash product. If, If I can control, hey, how many people am I talking to? 
or reaching out to, and I can control how good my product is. Other than that, I can't control anything. So mm-hmm. I best keep up those two aspects. You said, if I stop, it stops. That's the truth of it. If you stop, it stops. That's so on the money. You also just touching on something you said a few moments ago about where you have to put a whole bunch of stuff out for maybe to have a couple hits, right? You might do 50 blog posts and maybe two take off, right? So I forget who the composer was. There was a a hit songwriter back in the day, Whitney Houston, Madonna, Gaga. And they they were saying, everything you touch turns to gold. He's like, I had to write 400 songs to have like 23 number one hits. And of those 23 number one hits, six went platinum. For those six platinum songs, he had to write 400 songs. He had to put into the world that were just, maybe they weren't received, they weren't popular, they didn't no hit. listen to them. They didn't hit. They didn't hit. So 400 swings to get six platinum albums. And the, right? the thing about that is, like, unless you're doing it, right? So if someone's listening right now and they're doing it, right? They're trying, they're creating, they're whatever. They're gonna they're gonna feel good and they're gonna be like, all right, okay, okay, okay. I'm I'm on I'm on a track, right? It's not guaranteed success, but at least what I'm experiencing is normal. Mm-hmm. But if someone's not doing it, it's just words to them. They just hear what we're saying and they're like, oh yeah, oh yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But then once you're living it and then you hear it and then you're like reinforced with comfort because you realize, oh, that really is how it is. And then you realize that you're okay. Well, this is just part of the process. When I do cold outreach for my speaking gigs, yeah, like. If 6% of people respond, that's awesome. And if 2% of those are warm, that's like awesome. So that's two out of a hundred people. Yeah. Was that 20 out of a thousand or I don't know what it is, but it's not a lot at all. You control your effort, but not the result. How about moving on to like, say the 18 year old version of Charlie Brenneman. If they asked the 18 year old version of Charlie, what you wanted to be when you grew up, what would he have said? I just said this the other day, I was talking to a bunch of seniors, uh, two different groups of seniors. And I said to them, if you would have told me how to be a professional fighter, I told you to go hit the road, like zero chance of that. Exactly what I was a few years after being 18, a wrestling coach and Spanish teacher. So then you get, so you go to Lock Haven, right? Those don't know Lock Haven, division one, division one wrestling, that piece. Yep. I went to Bloomsburg. So I roomed with some wrestlers, some really good in the nineties, some really good wrestling yep. going on at the PSAC world. So take us through that. You're wrestling, you get through Lock Haven. So you're ready to graduate Lock Haven. Yeah. So I want to backtrack a little bit. The, the first four years of my college career were a lot of finger pointing and blaming. It was like the woe is me. Why am I not succeeding? I Like I want to punch myself when I think of that, right? And then my fifth year, that all changed uh, because of me, right? Because of Because I essentially made a decision. It was like, Nothing changed except that thing in myself that said, okay, I'm done with this. And then I moved forward. Um, had a great senior year, finished in the top 12 division one. And uh, also I was uh, on the first team all academic. So I was like, yeah, this was great. And then from there, I graduated, got the job back home at my alma mater. Oh, wrestling lingo is fat and happy, right? I got fat and happy. I just, I was, I was done you know, it's so hard. Wrestling is so hard. I got done with it. And uh, when I think of me in that time frame, I would envision a picture with some puffy cheeks and grease <laughs> on my forehead. Like, I just feel like it was not my best to me. And I was enjoying it for a while, started to get restless. And then this is like, I don't want to say this is the thing, but 
it certainly helped. So around that time that I saw, I don't know the chronology of it, but it was around that time I saw Frankie signed to the UFC. I was randomly cast on a reality show called Pros versus Joes. So I got a piece of junk mail. I was living at my, you know, I was living at home with my parents and I got a piece of junk mail. I always used to say I had gone to a wrestling clinic in Ohio. And I feel like that, I feel like the timing was such that I thought, oh, I filled out my info. They probably sold the info, gave away the info. I got a flyer in the mail randomly. I just got a flyer at my parents' house. It said, do you have what it takes to take on the pros? And I was like, yeah. And and this was all like at the same time of being, feeling unrest, seeing Frankie, wanting to do something different. And so I filled out this form and went back and forth, filled out a bunch of forms over a period of months, and then was eventually cast on this reality show and flew to the Home Depot Center in Carson, California. And I filmed, I won. It was all like top secret. You couldn't say anything because it was not going to come out for another six months. And so I won my episode. I went back home and then they called a week later and said, hey, would you come back for the finale episode and this time bring a partner? So then I brought my brother, Ben, and we went out again and we won again. So in the end, I won 20 grand and a, a new car. And then I got home from that and I was like, all right, like I got to do something because I didn't carry any of that fear or like less than or I'm a loser beliefs that I used to have. And so I started scanning the surface for, all right, what can I do next? Mm -hmm. The one show I remember watching, it was a football one, and they got these high school and college DBs, and they were trying to cover Jerry Rice. They actually brought Jerry Rice in, and he's running post patterns, and these guys from back in the day thought they could play DB. I, I had to try to tackle Herschel Walker. Okay. And then I had to, me and my brother played one yard line with Bill Goldberg and Kevin Green. Oh, that's so cool. So you Those go are those are available on Amazon. If anyone wants to watch them, just type Pros vs. Joe's season one. I'm episode nine and 10. So you go there, you win. What's your next step? What do you do next? So I go home. So that was, let's say that was December of 2005. They air in May of 2006. So there was a good six months of nothing. And then around that time, you know, 2006, I'm thinking, all right, what's my out? Where am I going to go? What am I going to do? And so I spent a fair amount of time kind of figuring out what I wanted to do. And then I started fighting amateur. So this is November of 2006 was my first amateur fight. Wow. So again, I don't know when Frankie, you know, signed, but it was basically Frankie seeing Frankie sign, doing pros versus Joe's, figuring out, all right, I'll try fighting, fought amateur in November of 2006, a couple more times throughout that school year. First pro fight is 07. And then the fall of 07, I had left teaching and started graduate school at East Stroudsburg as kind of a pivot from teaching to fighting. So back in 06, your first amateur fight, do you remember the moment where you walked out of the locker room into the ring for the very first time? It was so weird. I actually don't remember that moment, but I remember like the drive over because this was in Ohio, Steubenville, Ohio, which is just over the border of, of Pittsburgh, right? Just into Ohio. And it is like small town, big time, Western PA, small town, rural, like pretty rural people environment. And it was like my, my interpretation of it was like an, an old building that had like Coliseum type seating into the bottom with the concrete floors and pretty old fashioned. It was rainy and wet. And we had driven over and like my grandfather's 
he had like a big old, I don't know, 16, 18 passenger, big van. <laughs> and I was teaching Spanish at that time. So I was like, you know, f- probably fought on Saturday morning. So like I leave school Friday and get up Saturday morning and drive over and weigh in, et cetera. It was so out of my element, like a million percent out of my element. And uh, I just remember that I look like such a dork in, in my driven book. I have a picture of me at weigh-ins. I just look like a scrawny dork. <laughs> I just remember fighting and I feel like I remember every fight when you get hit the first time. It's such a weird feeling. It's just a thud. It's like a waking up thud, snap into reality, oh shit type feeling. And I I just remember that for the first time, remembering, oh, this is not a wrestling match. This is a fight. I better fight. And then just going and then driving home that night and resuming my Monday activity as a teacher. Wow. So take us through, you go through amateurs, you turn pro. At what point does the UFC come in? How does that come about? So I was living in East Stroudsburg, getting my master's while I started to fight. And I got in a good tournament in Atlantic City right off the bat in my career. So I made a decent amount of money. And I was like 4-0, 5-0. I fought John Howard in Atlantic City. John Howard eventually signed to the UFC, had a good career. And it was a really close fight. He won. And he got signed to the UFC. And that was kind of like, hey, whoever wins this fight is going to go to the UFC. And he won. I didn't. Around that time, fighting was sanctioned in Pennsylvania, pro fighting. So that was good timing because I was able to fight back home and make decent money fighting in my hometown. So it was a, a, a nice confluence of variables. And then around that time, I was moved from... Strasburg, Pennsylvania, over to Jersey. I was living in East Hanover, training at AMA Fight Club and uh, traveling in and out to New York to Henzo's and meeting up with Frankie and Almeida in South Jersey and just, just a lot of great exposure to great training and coaches. And then Mike Constantino, who ran AMA Fight Club, he already had Jim and Dan Miller in the UFC. He was pretty instrumental in the influx of Russians that came to the UFC. And so I was, you know, being handled by him with my, as my management and, you know, you just, he does, did the talking, I did the fighting and bop, 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 bop. And then a situation comes up. Wow. Fast for one of the, the downsides of this is injuries. I seen 2008, I think you're, you're fighting in the UFC, Chris Ligori, and he connects with a big kick maybe. And you shattered your left orbital. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So that was in practice. I was training. That was a couple months before the Howard fight. So I was scheduled to fight, let's say on a Friday, the Friday before that I was in Jersey training with Frankie and Chris Ligori and Chris threw a kick. And uh, all I remember is excruciating pain, falling to my knees, throwing my gloves off, seeing blood squirt out of my eye, thinking he kicked my eyeball out of my head and then touching it touching my eye and thinking, oh, thank God it's there. And then thinking, well, why can't I see out of it? And I couldn't see anything out of my left eye. It was black. And like fast forward, you know, the hospital, blah, 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 ended up, he fractured my orbital socket. And I eventually had surgery on that. And uh, vision came back and the doctor I had was really, <laughs> really awesome and uh, really helpful. And came back and fought in September. That was May. I fought Howard in September. 
Wow. How scary was that when you could not see out of your eye after a kick? How scary was that? It was super scary. Like I, so a lot, okay. Car crashes, they happen so fast. Fights, they happen so fast. You just think like a thousand things in a second. And I remember thinking my life is different now. Like I yeah. thought about, it was the weirdest random thought, but I thought about have, uh, having a picnic. I just thought of all the things in life that I would do with one eye yeah. and thought, well, this is my life is different now. This wow. is different now. After about five minutes, it, light started to shine in. And then it was like, it's crazy as headache, crazy, crazy headache. Um, and then eventually it was blurry and then it was double. And then it was like just a long process to get back. There's so many things that we as healthy people need to be thankful for, and we don't show enough gratitude for, but I think your eyesight, we take that for granted as much as anything, because if that left, that's gotta be one of the biggest game changers, right? And even if you lose half, like just one, I just can't imagine how scary that would be. Where'd you go get a fix? You go down Will's eye or Shay? Where, where did you go? No, I went immediately. I went to Perth Amboy and then I went to uh, UMDNJ. So in Newark, oh, yeah, at Rutgers. What was it like after you fixed your eye? How much hesitation did you have not wanting to get hit there again? That's got to be a little better. Yeah, a little bit. Like I said, the doctor that I had was super progressive in that he had worked with other athletes. And namely, I remember him saying he worked with a ho professional hockey so he was like real, he was the opposite of what most, like I would go get these physicals before the fights and doctors would try to hold me in the thing is, they know your blood pressure is too low. And I'm saying, or my heart rate is too low. I'm saying, no, I'm, this is normal. I'm in shape. It's 40. It, that's what it is. Like, I'm not dying. I'm not dead. I don't have a heart condition. It's that. So it was refreshing to have a doctor who was tuned into that life. So he gave me the clear, I do remember hitting pads the first time. Like I threw a jab and it was like impact. And I thought, oh, oh, my eye doesn't like something with my eye. But I got over that pretty quick and I, there was no lagging worry about it. That's a mentally tough person doing that. That is awesome. So take us through your UFC career. Take us from there. Yeah. So once I got signed to the UFC, I think I won one, lost one, won two, lost. My first stint in the UFC was I had 11 fights total. I feel like it was eight fights was my first stint in the UFC. I think I was four and four. And it was pretty good. I had a couple good wins, namely my victory against Rick Story. That was definitely the biggest fight of my career. He was ranked number six at the time. Mm -hmm. I beat him. Uh, I fought Rumble Johnson, fought Eric Silva. Like I fought a lot of studs, Kyle Noak, Daniel Roberts, Johnny Hendricks, you know, some legit guys. I beat some of them. I lost to some of them. I got released. That was at welterweight. I got released and then I fought on the regional circuit, which was a great year. Like it, it was a great year. I dropped down to 155. I had four fights, four finishes. I think it was four finishes, submissions. It was just great. Like it was great. And I thought, this is it, man. I'm coming back at 55 and I'm going to smash people and it's going to be awesome. And then I got back to the UFC and I <laughs> got knocked out, choked out, choked out, knocked out, choked out. <laughs> It was terrible. It sucked so bad. That was 2000. I'm thinking it must have been 15. So like it was get released, reinvent myself, do great on a regional circuit, make decent money. I'm freaking ready. Take a short notice fight, choked out to Benil Dariush, who's still in it now, doing really well. Then I get knocked out three months later, Danny Castillo. And then I get choked out a couple months later. 
to Leandro Silva in Brazil. And it was just like, are you kidding me? Why did this happen? What what, what was the point of it? What this, I could have just not been here. You know, why did this happen? Yeah. At what point do you decide, you know what? We gave it a good run. It's time for the next phase. Where, where does that kick in? It was a little while. My last fight in the UFC was November, I think 6th or 7th of 2014. I believe I got my walking papers from the UFC on New Year's Day of 2015. And then I took a good, I mean, I don't remember specifically, but it had to be a year at least of still traveling to Philly. At this point in my career, I was training, like that's where I met you at Balance. Training at State Fly Muay Thai in Philadelphia, taking the train over a couple of days per week. And I, I didn't have any. That was like, that was my job, right? So I would still make the trip over there. I would still do that stuff kind of like pretty quickly. It got to the point where my wife and I'll be having these conversations being like, hey, my mom is babysitting Gracie and you're going to train, but you're not really fighting. So I don't really feel good about that. So what are you doing? Are you fighting? Or are you not fighting or what? So it was a good period of time where it was just, you know, a lot of stress and fighting back and forth and figuring out what I was doing. And then I don't know, I'm going to say a year, year and a half. I just started to realize, Hey, the offers I'm getting, they were embarrassing. It was embarrassing. I was being offered a thousand dollars to fight after having an 11 fight UFC career. Mm-hmm. And the objective person in me just said, no freaking way am I going to do that? I, mm. There's zero chance that I'm going to do that. So then I started to write my first book and started to speak and little by little by little got more comfortable with, all right, the, the fighting is not my priority anymore. Yeah. Before we get into your career as an author and a speaker, I remember we met on the mats at Balance, the, old, the OG Balance Studios in Center City. I remember we rolled and I was there like three times a week, like nothing crazy. There's some guys that live there. And then we rolled and I'm like, Jesus Christ, what just happened? <laughs> and and then I didn't know your story. And I'm like, that guy's good. I go, dude, he's a UFC fighter. I'm like, oh, I feel better. <laughs> yeah. I, feel, I feel way better now about myself. Like, oh my God, what the hell just happened? That could work backwards sometimes because if people do know you're a UFC fighter, then you have to freaking... Every time you go somewhere, it's like a fight to the death and it's okay. sucked. So like, a super, like everyone's Super Bowl. Yeah, that's got to yeah. be crazy. Yeah. That, I, I remember that we rolled multiple times. I'm like, and it's so wild. Like the guys are the pros. I never got hurt from you. Like, like we would roll and you'd win, but like I would like, I wasn't like I had to go to the hospital afterwards. It was just yeah. like, all right, so cool. You meet some of the most interesting people on the mat in jujitsu, don't you? Like it's sure do. Yeah. yeah. I'm freaking Lex Friedman. I remember yeah. rolling with Lex. Hundreds, like hundreds of times, hundreds yeah. of times, right? Yeah. And then I'm like, wait, he's on Rogan? What the hell? Yeah, Who yeah, is this guy? How did yeah. this happen? I started my, I have a blog and I wrote like a couple hundred blog posts, nowhere near your success of writing, right? And I started my blog because of Lex Friedman. Like Lex Friedman had a blog. I'm like, how do you do that? And we're in the back in the locker room and he's just like verbally walking me through. Yeah. And I'm like, what do you think I should write about? And he's like, I uh, wouldn't do this. Uh, but he helped me start my blog. And then like you lose track of him for a couple of years and he's on Joe Rogan. I'm like, this yeah, crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty crazy. It's funny. It's awesome, man. So, hey, let's move on. Tell me about your first book. How did you know you had it, and how did you start writing it? Yeah, so the, I think sometimes naivety is a blessing. I was I just had nothing, right? So I went from training every day with a mission to fight, and then one day it's over, and then I'm like, but what am I doing? What am I doing? What am I doing? What am I doing? So I just needed like filler, and I had I'm from a small town, and I had always been asked questions like how much money do you make? Does it hurt? Are you scared? What's Santa White like? Everything, right? And so 
it occurred to me, I'll just write that stuff down into a book. I don't know that why, I don't know whatever. I just know that I was asked a lot of questions. I was trying to figure out a path forward and that made sense at the time. Mm -hmm. And so I, this is where the naivety comes in play. I just opened up a Word document on my computer and started writing. Awesome. And I don't know, the, that that first draft of, of that was probably, I don't know, 20,000 words, 30,000 words, something like that. And so I had this, I just wrote from the heart. I wrote from memory. There was no like structural thinking that went into it. And so I took that raw document. I sent it to my sister, who is an English teacher. I sent it to my behind the scenes partner on everything I do, Keith, whose nickname is Dread. He went through it. She went through it. They sent me edits. I went to work updating, switching around, whatever, cutting, including. And then it ended up with Driven. I think it's a with both books, right? I wrote them. And if I didn't say I like them for this reason or that, well, then why the heck would you have written them, right? You should be proud of what you write. I think Driven is a really cool example of a pretty unaware person myself having zero idea about writing, about writing books, about any I, zero about that, but like I did it. And I think it's a really easy to read inspirational, fun, behind the scenes, neat, like that insert we have at the end with all the t-shirts we mm -hmm. made throughout my fighting career. Uh, just back-end information about selling tickets for fights, almost getting in a fight with John Jones. Like, It's a neat book, something I'm proud of, that whenever people talk about barriers and barriers to, to entry or hiccups or whatever's, I literally just sat down and started writing. And then with the help of Dread, mm -hmm. he knew how self-publishing worked on Amazon. He designed the cover, but we spent a lot of freaking time on that thing, man. Like a lot of time and probably a lot more time on my second book. couple things. One, I love the picture where it's like you as a Spanish teacher, like the crazy hair with the mouthpiece MMA version. It's uh, the dichotomy the is awesome. That's an amazing picture. You talk about action right? There's nothing that beats action. Like just, you could talk about it. You could theorize about it. You could plan for it, but there's such power of opening the computer and just starting to type because you're putting the resistance away. You're kicking the resistance ass there and you're just moving it forward. And like just taking that first step is so killer, isn't it? It's it, so impactful. It is. Same thing with fighting. Like it's so freaking scary. So I mentioned the Russians earlier. So like when Khabib came to America. This mm -hmm. other guy named Adlon, when he came to America, they were so like, it was so scary to go train with those guys because they can't, they just trained so hard. It, it was literally like a fight. Like if, if I'm going to fight you, it's different, right? Like I know what I'm getting into, but like to go to your practice, knowing that you're essentially going to have to fight with someone who doesn't understand you or anything they don't speak English. It was just really scary, but you just did it. Same thing with writing. Like there's all these things you can write yourself out of doing a lot of things. Yeah. I tell kids all the time, imagine fear is like a pit bull or a bulldog coming at you in a skinny hallway rather than like trying to go straight at its head, just step to the side, let it run past you and then move forward. Mm. Like, just don't, don't buy into it. Don't let it inhibit you. Just keep moving forward. So that's what I do. I don't know, pretty much with everything. I'm still, I'm like, at times, a scared little boy. But I, I just don't let it prevent me from doing the things that I want to do.
I think that's probably the perfect definition of courage where the fear is there. And it's like Seth Godin always says, like, what do you do with the fear? You can, it's not going to go away. You just want to dance with it. You want to move forward. You just like you feel the fear and move forward anyway. That's to me like the perfect definition of courage, right? Yeah. Feel the fear, but do it anyway. And yeah. another one, just getting way back, you were saying you were getting a lot of questions of like what you make, who'd you fight, what's Dana White like, et cetera. What's it like getting a contract? What it's like being asked to leave? You keep getting asked the same questions. Ryan Holiday, are you familiar with his work? Yeah. Ryan, yeah. So big fan of his writing. And I had his research assistant, Billy Oppenheimer on. And Ryan, one of the things I go, what did Ryan, what you learned from Ryan Holiday so far? Ryan says, whatever questions you keep getting asked, that's what you write about, right? You write about it or you podcast about it. Like you create something, you do something creative with the questions you always get, where you have something to give people. That's the market. Like, yeah. that's what I was talking about. They yeah. tell you like- The market tell tells you, you. what they Yep, absolutely. Yeah. And that's, yeah. that's just exactly what you did with that book, which is so cool. Moving forward here a little bit, what's it like? You're doing so much speaking in classrooms. When did you decide, not only do I want to write it, I want to speak. Where'd that come into play? I think it was actually, I sat down to write right after that fight in November of 15. And I think it was January of 16, the first, I've spoken a lot in over my life, different things, rotary meetings and banquets, et cetera, et cetera. But I feel like it was that next year, January of 16, that I spoke for the first time thinking, okay, this, I think this is what I'm going to do. And the reason that came about is because when I wrote that book, I it was brought into my awareness that people who write books oftentimes speak, right? It, I didn't know that tandem existed. And then I met a guy, Jim Harshaw, who's a good friend of mine now, who is also a wrestler, who is, he's kind of, our. we have evolved since then, but he's more so in the like executive coaching. Uh, whereas more so I'm into speaking and working with students, et cetera. But by my connection with him, I started to learn about speaking and consulting, et cetera. And then I got that gig at a hometown wrestling match. It was unpaid. You know, I just spoke. Mm -hmm. And then I just started reaching out to principals and teachers that I knew from my teaching career. And, hey, do you do assemblies? That's what I'm starting to do. What type of budget do you have? Do you have a budget? And then I just went from there. What do you see that the kids today are dealing with that maybe perhaps that we dealt with or when we were kids or maybe it was something we didn't deal with? What's on their mind right now when you're yeah, in those schools? I think what they deal with a lot is fear, stress, anxiety, overwhelm, trying to fit in, trying to make the right choices, uh, believing in themselves, feeling like they can't move forward. And that's why I love what I do because fighting is that like, that's fighting that that's so much of the stuff that I went through fighting. Right. And fighting is only the, the cool factor with students. Like it's the hook, it's the cool factor, mm -hmm. but really what I'm talking about is life. And I'm able to grab their attention with fighting to talk about those things I have leaned in on that stuff, feeling like you're carrying the weight of the world on your shoulders, feeling like you have no one like these are the things that kids connect with the most because that's what they're feeling the most and more than anything i feel like i share my story with them sometimes the lesson i say is explicit this that the other thing but a lot of it is just through sharing the story you know when you watch a movie like in the movie, they're not saying, hey, Joe, this is the lesson. They just do the movie. And mm -hmm. then afterwards, you retain that information. Yep. So when I speak, some of it is explicit. This is what I learned from it. But then some of it is just inherent in the story. So what I realized, a lot of stuff the kids are dealing with, we 
as grownups are dealing with as well. Yeah. And and so my examples change when I speak to adult audiences, but yeah. really I speak to that same this is what's why Rocky is so freaking famous and popular because yeah. that underdog status, that yeah. fight, that winning and losing, that's what connects yeah. to people. It's like the evergreen material, that perennial seller. Like Marcus Aurelius in meditations, basically like life's a flat circle. Everything just keeps happening again and again and again. Just maybe the clothes change, the food changes, but it's the same stuff. Fear, stress, anxiety. You want to fit in. You want to succeed. Except, yeah, yes. Except the, the thing that the kids have that we didn't have is the like impeding onslaught of social media yeah coupled with the tendency of parents to want to prevent any obstacle in their kids lives so what you're having is students who haven't necessarily been exposed to adversity and or coupled with the overabundance of that stuff coming at them so you have like more mental and emotional um unease and so much more input being thrown at them so it creates a a really difficult situation it is so hard i think sometimes for a 40 50 year old person to look at someone's perfectly filtered scrubbed world where they take that perfect snapshot on vacation and they post and you compare that to like your dirty messy inside game you know what i mean where like the where where you mess up and all the stuff you're struggling like oh my gosh it's so easy to compare and feel bad. Could you imagine doing that at like 12 years old? No. Okay, I can't. Can't. You can't. You can't. You, I mean, you can't. You just can't. It's it's a So, I have a podcast and I read a bunch of books and I live fighting, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, I know. I've interviewed enough people to know what the behind the scenes looks like. So, when I do follow the people that I follow online and I see the beautiful bodies and I see the fit whatever's and I see the awesome businesses and the happy home lives. I, I know just, I put that stuff out too. And I know how much shit I go through. Mm -hmm. So I know they're going through the shit, but a kid doesn't really know that they don't know it because they haven't lived it. They have, they can only hear what we're saying, but when you hear what you're saying and then you see it and then you live it. And then again, that comfort I was talking about earlier, like failing so much forward to success. It's the same idea. Like I've had all of these famous successful people on who have all said the same exact thing. And then you start to realize and buy into, all right, all right, this is normal. I'm good. Yeah. You also mentioned too, that, that the kids, like that snowplow helicopter parent, I'm sure they were always around, but man, I think they're more around now than before. Like I do not remember my mom and dad taking the amount of obstacles off the path of that, what the parents do today. Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of people say different things or whatever, but I remember being at a Spartan event, Joe DeSena, I'm friends with Joe DeSena who created Spartan, a great guy. And and just, I, I look up to him a lot. And uh, he said something like every generation, we get weaker and weaker. And it's true. It's just, that's how it is. And a lot of that is blessings and we're fortunate, et cetera. But a lot of that is retroactive where it becomes not a very good thing. And, you know, there is the tendency, I forget, there's a term, but I forget the term, but there is a tendency to say, oh no, we're just saying the same thing. It's not really any different when we were kids and our parents, it was the exact same. I do not think it is. I do not think it's the same. I think it's a lot worse than it has ever been. I think that as 
as a society, we're not very strong physically, mentally, and emotionally. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's contributing. I think it's being passed on to the young people in our lives too. There's like a great quote from John Adams. I'll butcher it, but he basically, they talked about like his generation fighting the revolution. He goes, my generation is going to study war. So my kid's generation can study math and science. So the next generation after that can study art. You know what I mean? So they can create art. So it's like war, math and science, art, but it really gets softer. You know what I mean? You have like warrior, you got like scientist, and you got like then. Yeah. And I I don't, you know, my kids are nine and six and I don't, they're not, I'm not super hardcore with them, right? Like they eat junk and they, whatever they're kids. But at the same time, so sticking important for me to, and my wife, to to put a cap on things that we deem as not good it's mm-hmm. limited youtube it will be limited social media it will be like that's just mm-hmm. the way it is not elimination of it yeah but you know physical activity health nutrition you need to be aware that it, it's hard right mm-hmm. and a lot of people just don't want to do it and uh, it's just so important you mentioned about keeping your mind and body strong how about with everything you got going on with your family your speaking your writing when you got to clear your mind and recharge your body, what do you do? If there's one consistent above everything, it's working out. And it's not like patty cake working out. It is intense <laughs> working out. What's it look like? Every, every morning, I would say 80% of the time I work out in the mornings. Okay. And it, 80% of the time I do not want to do it. It's yeah. almost, I'm trying to figure out like, what can I do to change my attitude in the morning? Cause I just hate it. Absolutely. Absolutely. But it, so in recent years, last three years, my brother's battling a brain tumor. My mom nearly died from an autoimmune disease. And wow. this happened at the same time. So fall of 2019, we were trading brain surgery recovery for an ICU because my mom was dying. So it was a really tough time, but 0% did that affect my training? Like not at all. Um, and, and to me, I think that's to answer your question, the, whatever my downtime or my like get right time is, is that consistency of training and the same with my diet. It never gets out of whack. It, that's not to say I don't eat junk. I certainly eat junk, but it's mm-hmm. all within a bigger system that never gets off track. Yeah, yeah. Which Jocko said, you're either on the path or a slippery slope, one of the something yeah. like that. <laughs> and How it about- really is. Yeah, go ahead. It really is a tendency. And I, I, I'm so afraid of getting off track that I just keep myself in check. Like you hate doing the workout. Like this morning, we trained the local uh, balance affiliate I train at, uh, at Araxis. We have a sunrise jujitsu class and we get together like three, four times a week at like quarter six in the morning. We train till 7 a.m. And I hate getting up, especially in the winter, like 10 after five. Like you just get up, you're like, oh, fuck, I got to go. And these, everyone's bigger. They all want to try to kill you. And you're like, oh, but you get, you get the gear on and you drive, you get there, but you hate not going. You hate not going worse. worse than going. Like that feeling in the morning of going is like this big. But like yeah. afterwards, if I didn't do it, it's eight o'clock in the morning. I knew they're all home now, showered yeah. up. Going, I, I hate that 10 times yeah. worse, right? Yeah. And like another little tidbit for the listeners, strategically, I've learned. So I said I work out 80% of the time in the morning. The other 20%, whatever, it'll be whenever. But like the 100% key factor is I can never let, I've learned. To never let a workout hang over my head. 
okay. ever. Because if it's hanging over my head and it's 6 p.m., I've been a less than ideal dad and husband. Like yeah. I'm just pissy. I'm whatever, whatever. So if I don't work out in the morning, I know that it will be at a time in the day that will not make me a worse person because mm -hmm. I get stressed and pissy and whatever. Yeah. So it doesn't matter when it is, but just for me, and I'm saying this, if you're looking for a strategy, don't let it hang over your head. Do it whenever it's not going to make you a worse person. That's a great, right? it's such a great, such, such a great strategy. How about we just got out of the COVID-19 shutdown a few months, maybe like a year or so back. I mean, here you are, you have young kids at home. You have a speaking career, which totally got shut down. So what lessons did you learn from the COVID-19 shutdown? Well, I don't want to get too into it, but my whole framework of how I see, I'm going to say authority mm -hmm. uh, changed mm -hmm. the way I see my own perspective and morality changed. I learned to... Uh, and it was so hard. It was so hard. I'm sure everyone has their own hardness and difficulty through this all. Uh, but it, it like really, 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 really changed me as a person in terms of how I think about the world, how I think about leadership, what I deem as important, the issues that I care about. Yeah. It, you know, there was a point in all of this where I wanted to start vocalizing my thoughts mm -hmm. and dread my behind the scenes partner. I was expressing to him everything I thought and everything I felt. And he said, look, Charlie, you've got to make a decision. W choose your battles, mm -hmm. right? W what are you? What do you want to do? What do you want to be? What do you want to do? And I thought, well, I want to, I want to talk to kids more than anything. I want to help kids. So that steered me and, and yeah. in the direction that, that I'm at right now. That's such great advice. I mean, just looking back like that, but one focus is a great thing. But two, whatever side you came out on, the other side, just there's so much hate for whatever side you take, the other side hates you, right? Doesn't so matter. It doesn't matter. Like you could take any Democrat or any Republican, just say whatever you are. Let's just say you have a Republican everybody hates and they save a kid from the fire, a fire. The Democrats would find 17 things wrong he did. Yeah. But then if a Democrat did the same thing, the Republicans would crush that guy that pulled the kid out of the fire. They would never yeah. say, wow. They had a great day today. Thank God he did that or she did that, right? And, and so like as a person, I kind of decided specifically and then like indirectly, I'm just going to lean into that human feeling of fear and overwhelm and yep. stress and anxiety. And then I'm going to put that out there and I'm going to try to help people in that way. That's the fantastic. A couple of fun. First off, I really appreciate your time. Wrapping up here to be respectful. One, you're an author, you're a speaker. Uh, authors are usually really big readers. Do you have a book that influenced your life or changed your mind more than any other? Do you have a favorite book? Well, I want to put this out there. My website has a giant reading list. So yep. every 80% of my podcast is about books. So if you go to my website, charliespanier.com, there's a reading list. It's got hundreds of books. I have a tendency to mention when asked that question, Phil Knight's shoe dog. And oh, that's the story of Nike. That. How yeah. great that book. It's so just good. like all the things that we were talking about, like rejection and things not working out and a hundred misses. And it, like, that's just a really great book. Yeah. Uh, so that one's a great one.
How about at the very end, talking about fear or maybe just like not not having self-confidence? He's walking out of a movie theater. Bill Gates and Warren Buffett are there. And he felt like he was at the little kid's table. He was only worth like $8 billion and they're worth like $90 yeah. Billion. yeah, they were talking to him like he was in kindergarten. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, oh, hi, Phil. Bye-bye. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> so funny. Oh, cool. A couple fun wrap-up questions here. How about with everything we spoke about from your UFC career, teaching, speaking to kids, your author, being a parent, if you could have everyone listening take one lesson away from everything we discussed, what would that lesson be? I'm going to go back to that book where this came from is just keep going. Um, Phil Knight says in that book, if you pass on one piece of advice, it's don't stop, just keep going. And that, that to me is it. Just keep going. You got you have two options. You stop or you don't stop. You just keep going. Kevin Hart, he has a quote. His book, uh, can't make this up. It's so hilarious. It's great. Hilarious it's book. But uh, he says something like, you know, you can stop halfway and turn around or you can keep going in the end you'll have gone the same distance wow. i mean that's true you get halfway you turn around you, you two halves make a hole or you can complete the circle mm-hmm. and that, i think that's a great piece of, piece of advice as well that is really i forgot about that one that's awesome how about this um there's a fun question if you could spend the day with anyone historical figure alive or dead doesn't matter who would it be you know, this is a great question too. And I, I've been stumped on this question before and I don't have a specific person, but what I do have is a specific theme. I'm pretty fascinated by ancient cultures and civilizations. So whether we're talking about, you know, Native Americans in North America, or whether we're talking about Machu Picchu, or whether we're talking about the Egyptians, one of the things I'll connect this to your question about COVID. So the science and medicine and all of this stuff that was happening so fast in real time, it brought up the awareness that all right, history is to me, my computation, history is written by winners, right? We've heard that before. All we can go on is what we read and what we know, but there's also the possibility that what we're reading and what we know is not the truth. It's like a, a paradox or a, a, it's just, that's the way it is. The best we can do is go from what we read and learn, but there's also the realization that maybe what we're reading and learning is not accurate, right? Mm-hmm. If history is written by the, the whatever's. So I would love to go back. I just watched something this morning that about gladiators. I would just love to go back to these times and see like, how the hell were the pyramids made? Mm-hmm. How, what was it like to be a gladiator? What how the hell and why was Machu Picchu? I remember watching a documentary on Machu Picchu. The irrigation, it was fascinating. So I, I don't have a specific one of them, uh, but I would love to go back in time to ancient civilizations and just sit and look. Crossing the Rubicon with Caesar would be pretty cool. What's about everything you got going on? What's the most exciting project you're working on now, looking out for the rest of the year? I really am enjoying growing my business. It has taken forever to grow. I've just finished up the the most busy three weeks I've ever had. The podcast, I still haven't put my finger on the button of what will make my podcast grow. If you do, let me know. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't. I don't, buddy. And I've created, I've done everything here. Save your money on any course called how to grow your podcast because it doesn't work. Yeah. Right? I have zero idea. Yeah. Get on Joe Rogan. That's that's how you make your podcast grow. Lex, where uh, are you? <laughs> yeah, right. So I'm excited at the prospect of growing my podcast while continuing to reach more and more students. And I have a seed of an idea to write a middle grade book 
awesome. kind of a principle based middle grade book and or a picture book too. So cool. Now, I think regarding the podcast, I think there's nothing more powerful. Like you said you opened up your computer to start driven and you started writing. That's the most powerful thing you probably did with that book. I think with a podcast, just do the best possible next episode that you can do and post regularly. I think that's the most powerful little thing we can control. Don't you think? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've had like super famous people who share. <laughs> it doesn't matter. I've, I've had any super famous people, but I've noted people. And sometimes the everyday person's one pops more than the famous person yep. does. And it's like- I'll tell you, and, and I'm talking hundreds of listens. I'm not talking thousands of lists. I'm talking hundreds, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I did a couple episodes on Little League World Series because my hometown made mm -hmm. the final four in the US. Yep. They they loved it. Like people love it. And, yep. and more than like whatever, yeah. super famous person that you and I might love that everyone else is like, no, no, no I want to know about that over there. Yeah, it's, like, All crazy. Right, well. it's crazy. We can just do the work, but we can't figure out what's going to connect with the audience, yeah. right? Yeah. Awesome. That's so cool. Thanks for sharing that. Last question, Charlie Brenneman. If you had to get a quote or a saying tattooed on your body, what would that quote or motto say? Well, I have one and it is carpe diem. It's carpe diem, seize the day. <laughs> I laughed. Yeah. I knew um, you had it. So I just want to yeah. you're the, like the second guest of 70 that actually already had it on their body. Carpe yeah. diem. When did you get that? I think I was 19, 18, yeah. 19. Yeah. And I look at tattoos. I don't like, I don't want to say I don't care about tattoos. What I love about tattoos, sailors who have like the old the Navy yeah tattoo on their arms i freaking love them man i love them i think they're awesome they tell a story they talk about a period of time i don't regret any of my tattoos when i got that tattoo i was probably getting a tattoo because i thought it was cool and badass and old english writing i think it's i don't know i look at that time i look at me when i was that age i look at the meaning of it thank goodness it holds up over time yeah. i'm still a person that is trying to seize the day and get up and get after it was that had the Dead Poet Society? Was that no. that movie? No, no. I mean, I know it was in that movie, but I just I, I was looking for a saying, and it c connected with me. It resonated with me. It's um, it's, it's yeah, I have a quote on my wall over there. I, I might get this in the future, but it's it has to do with my brother, my oldest brother's battling brain cancer and Rocky Balboa. But it's from in the Warriors Code. There's no surrender. Those bodies says stop. His spirit cries never. I may get that. I may get that tattooed on me eventually. Wow, that's pretty powerful. So, wow, I think Carpe Diem is about as good as a spot to end as any. Charlie Bremen, I'd like to thank you for joining us. Great to see you again and honored to have you on the show. My pleasure, man. I enjoyed it. And people yeah. are looking for you and what you do online. Where can they find you? Yeah, the podcast, I have two podcasts, one for you know you and me. If you like this show, you'll probably like my show. That's a Spaniard show. I have a, a student podcast called Spaniard School. My website is charliespaniard.com. Social media is at charliespaniard. My website will have all the all my information. What I'll do is I will link all of those in the show notes, plus the Amazon links to your book, Driven, and then Perfect. the world's toughest, toughest lifelong learner. And uh, hey, man, I just appreciate you, man. Thanks for kicking my butt on the mat a few years back at Balance. <laughs> you got it, man. Hey, I'm happy to happy to roll anytime you want. Whenever your next project comes out, dude, would love to have you back on the show, brother. Absolutely, Joe. I appreciate it, buddy. I appreciate you. Take care, Charlie. Thank you, man. Yeah, see you. Likewise. Hey, it's Joe Chicarone. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. 
If you could, please leave us a five-star review. It goes a long way with connecting the podcast with more listeners. So if you could, I would really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Talk soon.